Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Hemant Mehta. This is Jessica Blimke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. Today we're joined by Connor Robinson, who graduated from Yale University, where he launched the Yale Humanist Society. He's a Teach for America alumnus, and last year he began and took part in the Pathfinders Project. This is basically a year of humanist service. Consider it a mission trip minus the religion. He visited Cambodia, Uganda, Ghana, and Haiti, among other places. And full disclosure, I'm on the board of the Foundation Beyond Belief, which helped sponsor the Pathfinders Project. So he's way biased. (laughs) (laughs) So I am a little biased, but you know what? It doesn't matter because what (laughs) Connor did is pretty amazing. So, Connor, tell us about the Pathfinders Project. For anyone who doesn't know what it is, how did it get started and what did you end up doing? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it got started in my garage, so to speak. Uh, I initially wanted to travel, but knew that I wanted my travel to be more meaningful than just a tourist visiting the site. And for me, that meant interacting with people on a basis other than tourism. But I knew as well that there was no way to do that by just showing up in a country and saying, as gen- even as genuinely as I might have said it, you know, tell me all about your life. Um, so I uh, thought about how I might go about doing that, and I drew upon my uh, experience as an interfaith activist and someone who had used service um, in order to build community through the Humanist Society at Yale, and I struck upon the idea of using service as a foundation for building trust um, and uh yeah, really just a sense of trust before um, trying to get a better sense for people's lives and have, have more meaningful conversations with them. Did that you know really that it all started? Did you know where you were going to go uh, before you went through all this plan, or did you uh, ever make any decisions about where you may travel on the spot while you were already abroad, or was all that planned out in advance? So we, we did plan it out in advance, but we didn't set the itinerary based on, you know, just my personal whim. Hey, I want to go here. I want to go there. Once I, once I determined that service was really going to be the, uh, the key for me, uh, then our selection of excellent groups with which we would volunteer really ended up determining our itinerary uh, because we picked the groups first. Yeah, and it's not like you're going to the Bahamas and like the coast of France or anything like that. You're you're going no, to places a, that really need help. Yeah, no, these were all definitely uh, third, third world countries with major human rights, environmental, uh, clean water and sanitation issues. Um, and with regard to your the other aspect of your question, um, there wasn't a whole lot of spontaneity or flexibility because we. We had to we had to really commit to these organizations. Um, I mean, we were picking organizations that were doing excellent work, and organizations that do really good work don't necessarily need 
short-term volunteers usually. They need people who are willing to commit at least a month of time. Um, so what kind of challenges did you face while you were overseas? I remember I, I uh, met you shortly before you were leaving, and you were formerly a vegan, right? And you kind of backtracked on that just so you could um, be more comfortable. Is that Am I remembering that right? Yeah, well, so I, I, had, I was raised vegetarian, and I had been vegan for four years before really committing to this idea of Pathfinders Project. And uh, I decided to prepare myself by going omnivore for the year before Pathfinders and then for the year of Pathfinders. It wasn't as much about wanting to make the trip easier um, as it was about being committed to this idea of uh, cultural exchange and wanting to participate fully. I knew that I wouldn't be able to be a great, you know, a gracious guest in people's homes if I was, you know, being nitpicky about what they were serving. And also, I recognized that. Food is an incredibly integral part of culture, and so I wanted to be able to partake in that fully. Um, so food actually wasn't... Huh, you'd think it might have been very difficult for me, but it, I ended up being one of the you know most voracious and widely-ranging eaters out of the group. But it, it did end up being a concern for some of the other travelers. Um, other difficulties, uh, one of our volunteers got malaria. Oh, um, shit. We, yeah, we definitely... Uh, also had some stomach bugs that we all came down with at one time or another. Um, the la- language barriers, of course, always played a role, but I see that more as a source of entertainment than difficulty. I think you have to, you have to carry a sense of whimsy with you if you're going to get through the challenges on a trip like this. Mm-hmm. I want to um, go back for a second, though. Take me back to the vegetarian thing, because... <laughs> <laughs> uh, like you, I was raised vegetarian. I have still never uh, purposely eaten like meat in my life. I'm sure I've accidentally had some or something. But when you're, if you're saying you're an omnivore, like the year before you go on this trip, and you're you're about to go to these other countries where you're probably not just eating meat, but eating meat no one has right. <laughs> eaten before. Um, does that mess with your head, much less your body? Uh, yeah, I mean, I know a lot, I've, I've heard horror stories from people who, even ones who weren't raised vegetarian, but they go vegetarian for a while and then they go back to meat, who just have major stomach problems. Fortunately, that wasn't an issue for me. The, the psychological component may have come more into play. I mean, for me, I still have a little bit of trouble when, you know, it's not just meat, but it's like meat on the bone with connective tissue mm-hmm. and other, you know, a bunch of different textures. Um... So yeah, that that definitely uh, there there were definitely times where we encountered things from animals that we couldn't identify, huh. and we looked at each other. Uh, like there was a there was a hot pot that we had in Cambodia that definitely had like congealed blood in it. Um, and, Delicious, uh, I'm sure. Somewhere. <laughs> We had some really interesting uh, fish balls that definitely <laughs> were the entire fish, just sort of like chopped up, everything included, and then mushed together. You yeah, were on so a reality we, show without the cameras. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> what other challenges, besides the food, what other big challenges did you all face overseas? Besides the malaria. Besides the malaria. Besides the malaria. Yeah, um, there were... I I would say gender dynamics um, mm. ended up and and the the difficulties that we encountered um, or the difficulties we observed women facing 
in other countries um, and really our, our lack of power to do anything about that aside from just discuss them when um, discuss the gender dynamics when we could when we had that foundation of trust built up with everyone I'd say that that was a little that was a little trying for us though of course it wasn't nearly as trying for us as it was for the women that we were observing sure. um, there were there I would say we, there were a lot of lessons learned about group dynamics for us I mean we were four people who'd never met each other before and who spent every waking minute together and in in challenging times um, so that that definitely posed its own uh, I wouldn't say problems, but it taught us lessons for uh, for the human service corps for sure. Well, I think anyone, I mean, anyone who's in a relationship that ends up living together Mm -hmm. when you're around someone for that long, it's like a sibling relationship where, yeah, you love each other, but you're fighting all the time, too. You know, that happens. Sometimes you just want to be away from people. Like, (laughs) go away. And especially if you're in a place where you can't just, like, go to a restaurant nearby and, like, have some alone time or, like... Go meet other people. Yeah. These are not just the you're only stuck people with these people. Yeah, not just the people you're living with, but the only people who speak your language, <laughs> right? In like a hundred mile well, radius, that's got to be tough. Exactly, and even if you're in a relationship with someone, even if you're cohabitating with someone, you know, you both have your own job. Mm-hmm. You, you both there. There are times where you have your own space, but you know, with our group, our work was together, our meals were together, <laughs> we slept in the same room. You know, our the bathroom privacy in some places was just not existent, so we were essentially bathing together. You know, there's really no point at which uh, we had our own space in some of these countries we were in. So yeah, it, it was a uh, it was definitely a trial. <laughs> Do you guys, uh, the people who went on the Pathfinders trip, are you all still keeping in touch now that you're back uh, in the U.S.? Yeah, for the for the most part. Um, I, I mean, I just uh, I was in. Atlanta with Ben Blanchard for DragonCon. We tabled together. And uh, in October, I'll be speaking uh, alongside Wendy Weber at um, the Yale Humanist Community. So we're definitely uh, still bumping into each other, and we're still in touch on Facebook and via email. But not bathing together anymore? Not bathing together anymore. (laughs) No, that that has come to an end, fortunately. Maybe one's for old times' sake, but not every day. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be the reunion. There you go. (laughs) Now, you guys call this like a humanist service project. Um, I wonder if, uh, how did humanism play a role in this? It's not like you were going to these countries and preaching the gospel of atheism. It's not like you were uh, preaching that you guys all have to be humanists. So where did that come into play? Just through your actions? Yeah, you're you're exactly right. I mean, this this wasn't about proselytizing. This wasn't about preaching atheism, and certainly wasn't about deconverting anyone. Um, to the extent that we had any sort of agenda that might be on that sort of missionary spectrum, it was only that we hoped, as a byproduct of our efforts, that people might soften their image mm-hmm. of atheism. But that certainly wasn't a primary goal. Um, so how did humanism come into play? Well, it was, it was interesting. Um, some of the projects in which we were partnered with explicitly humanist organizations, we actually found ourselves playing almost a playing almost the role of comparative religious educators, or of of really sort of downplaying our own humanism. Uh, for example, we taught in a couple of humanist schools 
where um, to us some of the some of the educational efforts actually seemed a little bit more stridently um, pedantic. Uh, there 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 was a little bit of an effort to teach humanism, and so we actually found ourselves. Um, playing up our interest in other people's beliefs and playing up our interest in interfaith work and serving as, um, as I mentioned, uh, educators about the value of comparative religious education. You know, why, why it makes sense to seek to understand other people first, which is what our entire mission was. Seek to understand before you seek to teach about what it is that you actually, uh, believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was an interesting and unexpected um, uh, interaction, you know, sort of with our own humanism and with the understanding of humanism that we discovered abroad. Um, the The other way it came into play was in the ways that we saw other people recognizing their own values in our actions. So uh, one really cool thing that happened, for example was in Cambodia, where um, even though <clears throat> English is only spoken in a very limited way, we had people recognizing things we were doing as um, being, or as, as expressions of a particular Buddhist value. Um, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name all of a sudden. I can remember the name from the, the Buddhist term, but I can't remember the translation in English. That's all right. What's the Buddhist term? Uh, it's metta. Excellent. Um, <laughs> that's ironic. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, works. No, okay. So it's, uh, it's loving kindness. I just, it just occurred to me. So, that so can't yeah, be right. we had, on more than one occasion, we had someone like, see something we did, and obviously we weren't doing it because we thought we'd be recognized, but we had someone saw something we did and then say, hey, loving kindness. And that was, and that's exactly how I would describe my own attempts at humanism. So it was really gratifying and validating to hear that expressed in another person's language. I mean, that's their vernacular. I wouldn't have used those words before, but as soon as they used those words, uh, it just, it seemed apt. Mm-hmm. Now, you all are planning to do this again, right? I don't know whether it's all the same uh, three, four people again, but are you going to go overseas once again later this year or next year? Well, yeah, but in a, in a slightly, well, more than slightly, in a, in a different fashion. So the, the underlying goal, or maybe a, an overarching goal, I don't know, however you want to think about it, of Pathfinder's Project was in addition to the work we were doing to scout out a location for the Humanist Service Corps. So uh, we visited um, seven countries. We had ten different projects, so ten different locations across those seven countries. And after Pathfinder's Project, we settled on one that we'll now be returning to in order to try and launch the first permanent international humanist service program. So in uh, the summer of 2015, we're going to be returning to northern Ghana with a core of hopefully, you know, four to eight volunteers, depending on the funding. And we're going to be working with the uh, women who are accused of witchcraft by their communities and who are expelled from those communities and forced to live in deplorable conditions. 
and you're going to focus on that one specific group of people for how long? Well, I I imagine that we will be there uh, for the foreseeable future because this is a this is a problem that um, is has deep cultural roots, and so what we'd like to do is we'd like to build a model in northern Ghana that is scalable and that that can be built elsewhere. Um, but I don't think we're necessarily planning on shifting, you know, our our service core from location to location. And we'd like to, to expand, um, but I imagine we'll be in Ghana for some time because the work we'll be doing is, A, to improve the living conditions for these women, but, B, the ultimate goal would be to decrease the number of women who are exiled from their communities each year mm-hmm. until we reach a point where women are no longer exiled and no longer beaten and killed obviously this is this is one of the things i think i really appreciate about the pathfinders project i've criticized uh, i know i made an atheist voice video about this once but i've criticized some christians who do mission trips not Mm -hmm. just because they proselytize but because it seems for some people it's more of a photo op than anything yeah. long lasting. So they go there, they they do a little bit of good work, they, they take their photos, the they hand out the Bibles, they take some photos, they come back home and they never think about that place again. And Connor, what you're saying is it's not enough that we that we visited these places. We want to go back, we want to set up something long term. Mm-hmm. Um and it's not about like we said, it's not about advocating atheism. It's mm-hmm. about saying these are good people who need help. And the people around them need a little bit of rational thinking uh, to realize that, no, this is not witchcraft that's the problem here. Right, exactly. It's not witchcraft that's the problem. And uh, and I think, I, I mean, I agree with you 100%. This is an education issue uh, in Ghana. But one of the reasons why I really um, I, I feel very strongly about this particular location as the starting point is because I also think it's a poss- it's a teaching moment for our movement. It's a teaching moment for skeptics, atheists, humanists, and agnostics. Because for many people, when I talk about the camps for alleged witches, the the first reaction is, "Well, this is superstition gone wrong. We need to fight the superstition." And although I agree uh, with that reaction, I am very wary of it because I think for a lot of people, it implies that we can fight superstition head-on, which is something that I would actually um, argue against, uh, just based on, you know, the way our brains work. Um, I think that this is actually more of a development issue than an argumentation issue. We're not going to solve the superstition by trying to tell people that they're wrong. Um, we're going to solve, We're going to solve this issue by making sure that there's access to proper health care education, etc. Because the fact of the matter is, there's only one out of ten regions in Ghana where these accusations happen. And it happens to be the least developed, uh, most under-resourced region in Ghana. And that's not an accident. That's not a coincidence. Mm -hmm. So, Connor, if somebody wanted, you said you're doing something summer of 2015? Yeah. So if Say somebody wanted to leave their job and come join you guys. Hypothetically, of course, nobody here would do that. <laughs> anyway, how how could we like? How could people come join you? How could people help? Like, what can we do? Well, in 
the long term, so looking at summer 2015, mm-hmm. uh, the, anyone who's interested in more information can sign up for updates. We're still uh, working from the Pathfinders Project website, although we are uh, getting our new Human Service Score website up off the ground. But for the time being, that would be pathfindersproject.com slash update, mm-hmm. and that will get um, that will get you everything you need to know as we as as it develops. Really, um, in the meantime. Uh, I will be traveling, and Wendy and Ben will also be traveling to uh, talk about our Pathfinders Project experiences and to answer questions people might have about um, the philosophy behind the Humanist Service Corps and what specific work we'll be doing. So people can um, get involved by, you know, getting to a location where we're speaking or finding our talks online and spreading the word that way um, on Facebook and Twitter. And as as far as we're concerned, that advocacy and that um, uh, word-of-mouth promotion is also very helpful. <clears throat> Connor, for people who aren't able to go on the service trip uh, or go overseas for that matter, have you learned anything from your work so far that, uh, you know, what can the rest of us do from home? What can the rest of us do who can't go overseas for whatever reason? Well, yeah, I think that's a, an excellent question, and I see this work as reinforcing all of the excellent work that the communities in the U.S. or, you know, any any home communities are doing. Um, I see it as a way of simply reflecting back an image of service-oriented atheism to humanist atheists and agnostics in the States, because that's unfortunately not an image we see of ourselves very often. Uh, it's not how we're represented. Um so, yeah, I, I, I think one of my biggest takeaways about volunteering and service from Pathfinders Project has direct implications for our work at home. And that's that we really need to reframe the way we approach service, I think, or at least the service I've encountered in the state. And that's um, what, I, what I mean precisely is that most of our service projects attempt to address uh, resource imbalances. So whether we be, whether we're giving meals to the homeless or packaging items to, to send um, or to deliver to under-resourced communities, usually we're addressing some sort of resource imbalance where the volunteer is a person of, of a privilege of some sort, and they find themselves in a position of having the time and the resources that they can donate to people who have less, essentially. And there's, there's a danger in that um, construction of service, and the danger for the volunteer is that that can become a mindset, um, that I have, therefore it's my obligation to sacrifice some of what I have for those who do not. And I'm not saying that volunteering isn't altruistic, but I'm saying that when we approach volunteering with that mindset, we run the risk of um, seeing the people we are helping as uh, nothing more than their deficit. We, we end up emphasizing the deficit uh, in their situation rather than looking for ways to leverage what they do have to offer. Um, and I think we should shift the way we approach service, and we should shift the kinds of projects that we that we create 
such that when we enter into a community, the project is not about what we bring to the community. The project is about, okay, when we go into this community, what can we help bring out of the community so that we're helping not just ourselves see the members of the community differently, but maybe we're actually giving the members of the, of the community the chance to see themselves differently for the first time as well by emphasizing what they have to offer rather than emphasizing what we have to offer. Is that something you picked up at all when you were doing Teach for America? Because that's a program that kind of places you in schools that probably have a lot of kids who, who probably, a lot of society, I think, sees them as kids who are in poverty, who don't have a lot of resources. And I would think it's a teacher's job to kind of bring out something different in them. Here's what you do have to offer. Let me make you even better at it. Is, is there a connection there? Absolutely. I, I think... A lot of my preliminary ideas for Pathfinders Project came out of my experience as a Teach for America Corps member. And I would, t- I would go one step further. For me, it wasn't just about being a teacher. It was about being a special education teacher. And approaching children who have special needs um, with the mindset that you're looking for their strengths and how to leverage their strengths and not focusing on what their special needs are and how to meet those special needs is a critical mind shift for the special educator because you can, I mean, I, I'm sure you can imagine how easy it would be to enter into the work of special education with the opposite mindset, the deficit focused mindset. And that can be debilitating for a student and for any student, not just a student with identified special needs. Um, so yeah, that was definitely something that, uh, that, came from my experience in the classroom. Oh, one last question for you, Connor. How has your life changed since you've been back home? Um, yeah, uh, I have an, in, an intense, sometimes overwhelming appreciation for things that uh, I never did before. Um, a lot of people ask me if I feel um, guilt being back in America, and, and I don't know, maybe I should. Fort- I, I think I'm fortunate, though, in that I don't, and that it's simply a sense of appreciation that I have. Uh, I, I mean, I live in Los Angeles, so I do spend a lot of time in traffic. But um, now, instead of getting upset about the traffic, I just appreciate where I am. Um, I'm still trying to come to grips with the fact that every tap Every faucet of water I turn on is clean, safe, and even heated if I want it, water. And that's, like, I don't, I don't think 95% of Americans understand what a feat of engineering that is mm-hmm. and how uncommon it is if you're talking about the rest of the world. And so just coming back, I mean, I still forget to wash my face with hot water most mornings. <laughs> Because that's just, that's so foreign to, to most of the rest of the world. Um, so I think I, I've, I've been changed pretty significantly in my appreciation for, I mean, in America we wouldn't even call them luxuries. Mm-hmm. But, but for things that I definitely consider luxuries now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Connor, we're coming up on time. Um, so one more time, can you give us the website where um, people can reach Pathfinders Project and what they can do when they get there? 
Absolutely. So the website is pathfindersproject.com. I think it's a forward slash. I always get them mixed up. What's the usual slash? It's a like forward H- slash. It's a regular slash. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it's pathfindersproject.com forward slash update. And you can sign up there and you'll receive, you know, basically minute by minute, up down to the wire, uh, updates on, on developments of the Unit Service Corps, which is coming right up. All right. Well, thank you so much, Connor. We appreciate your time. Thanks to the two of you as well. Thanks, Connor. You've been listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois. The music was composed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blimke. We hope you'll join us next time.